0: Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Marcus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we'll be talking to Uwe Zimmer, who's a researcher and robot designer at the Australian National University in Canberra. His research interests include adaptive world modeling and artificial neural networks, and he's a pioneer in the development of underwater robotics. He's the founder and head of the Serafina Project, which aims at developing and controlling a swarm of autonomous submarines. The Serafina submarine swarms will be commercialized by a company called Project Sea Swarm as of 2007. Hi, Uwe. Welcome to Talking Robots. Well, thanks. Uh, So, uh, my first question in a nutshell, uh, what is underwater robotics?
1: Yeah, Marcus, underwater robotics in a nutshell, that's a very complicated question because there is no nutshell version of underwater robotics. It's actually a very wide field which involves so many different disciplines and aspects that you can't do this in a nutshell. Okay, now the answer to the question, what is a nutshell version of underwater robotics? We are trying to uh, supply tools for exploration, monitoring, and maybe manipulation Even so, I'm not perfectly convinced about this part. But we definitely strive to uh, provide tools to the community which help them exploring and monitoring underwater environments. So that would possibly be our perspective for underwater robotics.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, what are the main challenges underwater?
1: The main challenges are, from our perspective, I think, covering volumes, dealing with a vast amount of water, and masses which you find in the oceans on this planet. So what you have to have is uh, distributed synchronized measurements. What you have nowadays is individual measurements which you dip down in one specific spot of the global oceans. And you get one single reading someplace. There's no long-range remote sensing like what you have uh, by satellite sensing or something like that. You have to be there. You have to be in the specific spot. If you have only one big vehicle, you get one specific measurement. Now put this into the relation on the size of the, of the oceans. That's what you have right now, but that's not very uh, rewarding. That's not very convincing. So what you actually would like to have is wide-range, synchronized, distributed sensing systems, and that is possibly one of the main challenges underwater for us at all besides all the technological constraints, which we probably will talk about a little
0: later. Okay, so you mentioned sensing a lot. Um, I, m- I imagine many of the typical sensors that you'd use in robots, like infrareds or laser rangefinders, they wouldn't work very well underwater, would they?
1: Yeah, that's uh, a classical question from, uh, from roboticists in this area. Uh, no, of course, they all don't work at all. Uh, laser rangefinders, some people actually try to make them work to some degree, and on very short ranges they do some... Uh, sensing, but most of the sensors which are traditionally used in air, like Bluetooth communication, this penetrates the water by a few millimeters and then it's the end of the story. Uh, most of these uh, sensing modalities will not work underwater at all. So you have to change the focus a little bit to what you can transmit underwater, which is basically a short uh, range, long wave radio communication. What you can do is acoustic forms of communication, sonar technology. This works reasonably well, also on short ranges, of course. Specifically, if you are under power constraints, because uh, most of the underwater research which is happening, this is uh, remember, this is not being done from an atomic submersible, which infinite power supplies. But this is done from uh, comparatively tiny vehicles, in our case, the vehicles such as 40 centimeters long. So power constraints are very severe and so all of the sensing is very short range on the other hand you have lots of possibilities for chemical sensing uh which are not quite so easy in air so it gets you have to get used to the underwater world a little bit um if you're an experienced diver then you have a better feel for the whole thing and uh having spending uh, spend time there um gives a different impression of uh, the underwater world
0: yeah it sounds quite exciting this whole sensing part so um you're currently working on uh, on a project with uh, involving uh swarms uh the Serafina project, and basically what you try to do there is is to build a swarm or a school of small autonomous underwater vehicles. What do these look like?
1: Mm, our little Serafinos. Uh the Serafinas are very small uh autonomous vehicles with uh, five completely independent uh, thrusters, so we have five degrees of freedom. And uh, the vehicles are small. They're very yellow. That's one of the main features. And uh, they're fast, agile, about uh, 40 to 50 50 centimeters long. So they're very small uh, with respect to standard underwater vehicles. Uh, They are completely autonomous. You cannot control them from the surface. Um, They can go down as deep as you can afford pressure hulls inside them. Um, they communicate locally by long-wave radio acoustics and uh, organize autonomously in swarms underwater. So you don't have to control any, uh, or you don't have to program each and every of them individually. That's a central feature of the Serafina project. It's from the very beginning, from the start, is dedicated to uh, self-organized swarms and uh, to release the operator out of the role of controlling the vehicle explicitly and only giving the uh, overall swarm uh, missions by following a gradient or following a specific pattern and the internal swarm organization should all be left to the actual serafina, uh, swarm which we send out. The other aspect is handling. We are pretty keen on the... <coughs> me. We are pretty keen on the handling aspect of underwater operations. While you usually need to have winches, cranes, boats, whole crews, and calm waters to have any kind of an ocean experiment and underwater vehicle set out, you can just throw these uh, small Seraphina vehicles overboard or just uh, use a net to get them in the water and use a net to get them out again on the, uh, by the end of the day. So the handling of these vehicles is significantly easier uh, also for smaller operations. You don't need to have a big boat to do something like that.
0: And uh, so basically what you have is this this, this swarm, a big amount of, of these fairly small, 40 centimeters, uh, submarines. And uh, you already told us why it's interesting to have a swarm uh, underwater, but how do you go about controlling these swarms? I imagine that's not a simple task.
1: Mm, no, not perfectly. <laughs> but um, as I said, you have to try to uh, um, we try to keep the operator completely out and not bother him by uh, organizing the swarm itself but only controlling the swarm as a whole and uh, inside the swarm uh, a specific mean distribution for example, a mean density of the swarm should be organized at any given time, which means that for example, the communication system inside the swarm must be able to adapt to that. You have to cope with situations that you have a shark going through your swarm of uh, little submersibles and just picking one out of them. So you will lose vehicles uh, along your missions anyway. At some point, you will maybe like to introduce new vehicles into the school. So all these uh, extensions and reorganizations of the swarm need to be uh, addressed from the very beginning, which we hopefully have done. And uh, the whole... Organizational whole control of the swarm is oriented towards um, search for distributions, uh, follow gradients underwater, um, or follow a certain uh, temperature gradient uh, along a ridge or along an edge of uh, a specific sea area. Um, so you don't have to bother about the specific control of the swarm or the individual vehicles at all.
0: I see. So you've... You've already touched on this. These these things are fairly small, and autonomy is is an an issue. How do you solve How do you solve this problem? Do you still work around? Do you replace vehicles while the swarm is working, or can the swarm surface and recharge the batteries using solar panels or or something? What what happens?
1: Yeah, we can't do this right now. Uh, the only thing, but we can do is uh, we get them in the water, um, any number you like. And you can also, if you can, still access the swarm because once it's uh, going down and. Uh, depending where your operation depth actually is. Uh, imagine you're operating some three kilometers down in the ocean. You cannot just access this swarm and uh, introduce new members to the, uh, to the swarm during the mission. If it's closer to the surface, you can possibly do that. But uh, the main uh, the basic idea is that there is no communication throughout the whole mission anyway. So autonomy is not only autonomy in sense of energy underwater, but also uh, for the whole mission control. Recharging of batteries by using solar cells. This has been done by uh, some other groups for individual vehicles quite successfully, actually. It's an interesting uh, technology, but we haven't uh, employed technologies like that yet. Um, the amount of energy what you can gain by solar cells is enough to power a glider right now, but not a um, vehicle which is powered by five independent uh, thrusters like in our machine. So that's a pretty tough drop, specifically if your vehicle is very small, which also means that your solar panels will be comparatively small or the whole construction will be very fragile, uh, besides the effect that also using solar panels in the open waters is quite limited in the mission time as well because the uh, amount of growth what you see on the solar cells in a comparatively small amount of time will reduce efficiently quite drastically. So we are building currently on the available battery technology, which allows us, if you spend a little bit of money for the batteries, to operate the vehicles by about 24 hours while going at uh, full speed forward. So that's not too bad for most missions, and we currently assume that you are able to pick them out of the water after a full day of operation.
0: I understand you're not just, not just building these things as a research tool, but you're actually selling them. Um, can you... Tell us something about the potential applications for these underwater robots.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question, which we obviously uh, get a lot. And honestly, I'm still struggling about having a meaningful answer to uh, the question like that. Of course, there's quite a lineup of um, applications. There's lots of monitoring tasks, lots of exploration tasks, Um, but... If you ask me where will be the killer application which will actually uh, empower this whole industry into a new dimension, um, lots of people have a similar feeling than we have, that there's lots of potential in this whole technology and they're spending money and they're trying to buy our vehicles and they're pre-ordering them already. So there is lots of interest and people begin to imagine what you can do with that. But I feel sometimes like this is at the brink of the introduction of a photocopier or a car or something like that. Maybe you uh, know that at the introduction of the photocopier, um, nobody had any idea what to do with this thing. And it was just a piece of technology that did something fancy, and people started to think what you can possibly do with that. And I'm quite sure that at the, sorry, <coughs> at the time when cars saw the uh, light of the day for the first time, Nobody had a real firm grip what kind of applications and what kind of usage you could envision by using uh cars. From today's perspective, that's much easier to answer. So maybe ask me in fifty years from now if I'm still around.
0: Okay, I will. So now maybe for some some more general questions. You mentioned fifty years. What what do you think are the big the big goals in underwater robotics in the next let's say twenty years?
1: Um, For underwater robotics in the next 20 years, I probably would address things like the communication systems because communication systems underwater are severely underdeveloped with respect to what you have today. Uh, Completely autonomous distributed control um, is just about to begin uh, to become realistic and begin to be used uh, for actual applications, but it is still quite a challenge uh, to get this into practical usage. Specifically, the communication system is not much further than uh, individual point-to-point communications. We introduced the communication system which enables you to have um, an ad-hoc swarm communication between all members of the school in a scalable fashion, so you can add as many as you like because we can control the ranges of the communication system. Um, We will never uh, have a problem in scaling of the whole system like you can uh, add quite impressive numbers of uh, mobile phone stations in the communications systems which we are used with, uh, which we are used to right now. Uh, but all these uh, technologies don't exist for robotics, um, for underwater robotics right now. So this is quite a challenge.
0: So you mentioned uh, communication. You think that's that's the biggest challenge in underwater robotics for the next 20 years, or is there something else?
1: distributed control and uh, getting the operator completely out of the loop because I think for the real breakthrough of underwater robotics, this is one of the must-have features which we need to implement um, to re- to get the robotics area out of the field of uh, experts, which need to spend a day to pre- pre-plan uh, missions of individual vehicles as it is done nowadays very carefully And to make these uh, vehicles as autonomous and as robust as possibly imaginable. Um, So we are currently uh, developing uh, vehicles which are just switched on, thrown in the water, do their job, picked out by the end of the day, um, which works under specific circumstances. But to make this really robust and everyday applicable, um, this is quite a challenge for our underwater applications.
0: I think so. True swarm autonomy is definitely something difficult to do—a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now moving towards robotics in general, um, we've seen a lot of technological advances. I mean, it's going faster and faster. Processors, processors are getting faster. Uh, batteries are better. Uh, which fields do you think are, are are the most promising technologically? Where do you think the biggest advances will be made?
1: Yeah. Uh, You're probably more asking where I hope that the biggest uh, breakthroughs will actually be made. Uh, What we would need is um, much more energy, as everybody else. Um, Keeping them operational by a day is a good start, but uh, if you would have um, energy sources which would propel your vehicles for a week or a month, completely new areas of applications would open immediately. This would be uh, quite a technological Um, challenge we would like uh, to see addressed more carefully. On the sense of speed and miniaturization, we have been very pleasantly surprised in the last two years. And, in fact, the whole design of our uh, quite small vehicles of just about 40, 50 centimeters uh, was only possible in the last three years because the computer systems which you could buy before that, all the gyroscope systems, the accelerometers, all the pressure sensors, and all the default tools which you need for the standard set of sensor systems uh, to operate underwater vehicles, those were just gigantic with respect to what we have nowadays, and this was just three years ago. When we started in this field, I was trying to find the smallest inertia navigation unit which was possibly available on the market, and I found uh, companies which proudly presented me the smallest inertia navigation system on this planet, and this was a good deal larger than our whole vehicle. Um, and nowadays, you have this in the volume of a few cubic centimeters. So we saw quite impressive technological advances in the last two or three years already, but possibly uh, the challenge of um, battery consumption and larger capacity batteries is still outstanding as it was in the last 20 years, I think.
0: Okay, so that's really the big
1: problem uh, energy. Yeah, it sounds quite naive and quite simple, but as I think most roboticists which work in the field for a longer time are uh, complaining about the most stupid things like uh, wobbly connectors and empty batteries, this is actually something that hinders technology by quite a bit. While on the other hand, if you look at processor power, we have in the vehicle's so many individual microcontrollers and processors which add up to a computational power which is quite impressive with respect to what you actually need um in underwater processing that we are reasonably happy on that side by now I think
0: mm-hmm. okay so uh now for a, for a last prediction um very general one we've, we we've almost seen 50 years of robotics go by and Still no robots in our everyday lives no no robots in the homes. Uh, do you think in the next twenty years will this change
1: honestly no honestly, I don't think this will change significantly um, if you if you ask for the impact of domestic everyday life on robotics, this will still be quite minimal I think you will see that um, at least this would be my guess, that the toy market will expand uh, significantly. And I can easily imagine that somebody comes up with an extremely sexy and interesting toy which leads to a new revolution of uh, robotics technology. But on the toy market, that's not a but actually, just on the toy market, um, maybe the uh, vacuum cleaners will be, be evolving into something a bit more useful. Um, On along these lines, we will see probably small developments, but this is not a breakthrough um, spreading out robotic technology into everybody's everyday life. Now, am I pessimistic? No, I'm not pessimistic at all, because most of the changes which I anticipate will not be so visible, and they will only impact on either the life of specialists, which are which need to operate in dangerous environments and remote environments in places where you cannot access um, the place by normal means. You wouldn't like to send humans, something like that. Um, or in areas which you would not um, associate with robotics in the first place, like having a better flight controller, having uh, more autonomy in your train controller, in your uh, new, Airb- new Airbus controller, something like that. Um, this is probably where the advances in the next 20 years will be uh, of highest impact, not necessarily of, uh, in the everyday life of, uh, of everybody and uh, you and me uh, outside our research groups.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Uwe, for joining us here on Talking Robots.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: This concludes this week's episode of Talking Robots with Uwe Zimmer from the Australian National University in Canberra. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.